You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Thank you for listening. Hey, so thanks for joining us for our online worship today. I'm glad that you joined us today. We're in part three of our series, The Bible. And the reason I wanted to do this series is because most of us know some Bible stories. In fact, if you grew up in the church, you probably know a lot of Bible stories. But if you didn't grow up in the church or if you're new to faith, you, you may only know some parts of Bible stories. And, and you probably know just enough to know that some of the stuff that we read in the Bible could only happen if, it, if a miracle was involved. It, it's really miraculous. And so it's, some of the things in, that we read there are kind of hard to believe. But that's okay. That's okay. It, it's, it's hard to believe some of that stuff because they are miraculous. And, and part of the problem with that is that while many of us know some of the Bible stories, very few of us know the story of the Bible. And I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced of that, of this, that knowing the story of the Bible, that is how we got the Bible to begin with, is almost, almost as important as knowing the stories that are in the Bible. Because if you don't know the story of the Bible, if you don't know how we got the Bible to begin with, it's easy to discount or to, to dismiss the stories in the Bible. And one of the things that makes this so challenging for us is is the way that we got our Bibles is not the way that the world got the Bible. By the time you got a Bible, if you got one as a child, and maybe you got it and it had your name in gold lettering on the front of it because that's what we do, and um, and and it had uh, maybe a cross reference, and you know, by the time you got a Bible, it was all chaptered and versed, and and maybe you got a study Bible and it had even comments at the bottom to help explain to explain to you um, what the Bible was talking about. But that's not how the world got the Bible. And just so we're all clear about this, Jesus didn't write, write any of the Bible. But if it weren't for Jesus, there would not be a Bible because the story of the Bible does not begin with Genesis. The story of the Bible begins with Jesus. And here's why I say that. The story of the Bible actually begins in the first century when Jesus' followers found his tomb empty. And then Jesus was seen by all of these people and, and these cowardly followers who just days before had run for their lives. They had denied that they knew Jesus. They, they were scared for their life. They went into hiding. They, when Jesus showed up three days later and they saw him alive after being crucified, they, they went back into the streets and they said this. They said, he's alive. He, he was dead, but now he's alive. We've seen him. And thousands and thousands of Jewish people who were in the very area where Jesus was arrested and crucified and buried, they embraced Jesus as their Savior. Well, eventually the Apostle Paul comes along, and we're going to talk about him more next week, but he and some other people, they leave Jerusalem, and they go to some port cities around the Mediterranean basin, around the Mediterranean rim, and they began to share the story of Jesus and, and the fact that God had done something in the world through his Son and, they, and that he had raised him from the dead to punctuate all the things that he had said about himself. And during that time, men began to document the life of Jesus. And if there had been no resurrection, there would have been no need to document. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would be no story to tell. But, but we said in the first week, this is where we get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the, the four accounts of the life of Jesus. Two Greeks and two Jews who, who sat down to document the life of Jesus. And then eventually the Apostle Paul left that region of Judea and Galilee and he began to spread the word uh, of Jesus and his teaching among the Gentiles around the Mediterranean rim. And this is where the story picks up from last week 
When, when Gentiles, when non-Jewish people became enamored with Jesus, they immediately became enamored with, with the Hebrew text, the sacred text of the Jews, what, what we call the Hebrew Bible. Now, Gentile Christians in, in the late first century, especially in the second century, they embraced the, this text as scripture. But here's where the storyline gets complicated. They, they did not embrace the Hebrew Bible or, or the Jewish Bible, the Jewish scripture, as, as Jewish scripture. They embraced it as Christian scripture. Because while Gentiles were certainly interested in the Jewish scripture, they were not the least bit interested in the Jewish religion. Their, their interest in the Jewish text was not hist- historical or, or cultural. And, and I'll explain why. Because during this period of history, there were some, some interesting things going on. There were two or three different things that were going on that, that caused this. The first one being that the temple had been destroyed. The, the Jewish temple had been destroyed, and, and the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders specifically, the, the priests and the rabbis, the scholars, they, they were trying to figure out how do we practice our religion without a temple. And so Judaism took on a distinctly different flavor in, in, the, in the late first century and, and into the second century. The second thing that was going on was that the Jews periodically at the end of the first century and, and really all the way through the third century would, would often side with Rome. They would side with the empire against Christians. And so there was this, this built-in conflict between Christians who were using Jewish scripture and the Jews who said, hey, that's not your scripture, that's our scripture and, and you're just some sort of knockoff cult who's, who's given us a bad name and you have the potential to ruin our relationship with Rome. And so the Jewish leaders, they sometimes side it with Rome. And then the third thing that was going on that made this relationship between Jews and Christians so difficult was that Gentiles didn't really want to be Jewish because from their perspective Jews were a little bit odd. I mean, they wouldn't work one day of the week, they wouldn't eat certain things ever. They they wouldn't come over and they wouldn't invite you over. They wouldn't allow you to to marry their daughters and they wouldn't let their daughters marry your sons. And so consequently the, the church Christians, they, they took the book, they, they took the religion, or they, they took the book, excuse me, but they didn't take their religion. And they, they took the book, but they didn't take the culture. Their, their interest in, in the Jewish scripture was not historical or cultural. Gentiles' interest in, in the book was Christological. They, they went into the Hebrew Bible not looking for Hebrews. They went into the Jewish scripture not looking for Jews. They went into the Hebrew Bible looking for Jesus. And they found him everywhere. They found him in places, in fact, that he was actually not. They, they found all kinds of texts that they decided were about Jesus. And, of course, the Jewish scholars, the, the Jewish rabbis and leaders, they were just appalled that these non-Jewish people who, who couldn't even read Hebrew would do such damage to their text and, and, and the way that they would interpret their text. But the Gentiles, they rejected the Jewish interpretation of the Jewish text. And here's why. Their thought process went like this. The church fathers said, look, you Jewish people, you missed your own Messiah. You, you, didn't, you didn't understand your prophets. You misunderstood them. We, we want your text, but we're not interested in your interpretation of your own text because you missed your Messiah. And so at the end of the first century, this is after the Apostle Paul and, and after the Apostle Peter and all of, Jew- of Jesus' apostles are gone because it's interesting to know that in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul was very specific. He addressed the Gentiles and he said this he said, to the Gentiles. He said, hey, you Gentiles, don't get all uppity and, and don't think you're something that you're not and don't have a bad attitude toward Jewish people because if it weren't, if it weren't for us Jewish people, there would be no Messiah for you to even embrace. So, so, so be careful how you treat Jews. And, and he, so he warned the Gentiles not to 
disenfranchise themselves and not to be critical of the Jewish people. But in spite of, of that, there was conflict early on, as really as, as soon as the first century and into the second century. So, so what happened is essentially the early Christian church, the, the early church that took the Hebrew text, and they essentially, they, they baptized it, they, they Christianized it, they allegorized it. And, and unfortunately, for the most part, they downplayed or, or completely ignored, but, but certainly they didn't teach uh, sequentially the, the fabulous and the gritty and the epic history of the Hebrew people. Because the Old Testament, the Old Testament, it chronicles God's redemptive sequential activity in, in history of the world. In Genesis, as we saw last week, in Genesis, God shows up at the beginning as a creator. But very quickly into the book of Genesis, he takes off his creator hat and he puts on his founder hat. And he, he begins founding a nation to bring redemption to the world. And that begins with a man that has no family. He has no children. And his name is Abraham. And through Abraham, he birthed a nation with an international, multi-generational purpose. A nation that would eventually be enslaved in, in Egypt. A nation that would eventually be enslaved by a Pharaoh who thought he was related to the gods, who considered himself a god. And then at the right time, God sent his servant Moses into that environment. And he goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, you need to let my people go. You need to let God's people go. And he spoke on behalf of God. And Yahweh, the Jewish God, spoke to Pharaoh in only terms that a Pharaoh could understand because Pharaoh rejected Moses' plea to let the people go. He, he says, I'm not going to do that. They're, they're slaves here. They're good here. And so God speaks to Pharaoh in only a way that he can understand through violence and power. And at the end of this epic story, God frees his people and they leave Egypt and they leave Egypt wealthy. And Moses leads the people out of Egypt and he leads them to Mount Sinai. And it's there at Mount Sinai where God establishes a covenant with his people. And he says to the Hebrews, God says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And you're going to be separate from all of the surrounding nations because I have a very, very, very specific plan for you. Because through you, through, through you, my people, we're going to bless the entire world. And he said to them, hey, here are the rules. Here are the laws. Here, here's a covenant, ba- basically a contract. And he said to them, I'm going to give you your own land. And when you get to the land, if you obey me, I'm going to prosper you. But if you disobey me for the sake of the world who's watching, I'm going to have to punish you. And if you take on the customs and the religious traditions of the surrounding nations, if you embrace the morality of the surrounding nations, if you embrace the polytheism of the surrounding nations, I'm going to give you to the surrounding nations so that you get a real good dose of that. So that when you repent, I can bring you back to the land. And it was conditional in the sense that God would bless them if they obeyed. But it was unconditional in the sense that that, that he he would always be their God. They would always be his chosen people with a specific agenda in mind. And all of this was outlined at Mount Sinai when when Moses came down with, with not 10 commandments, but with 613 commandments. He came down with 10 big ones, but within those 10, there were 613 commandments. And, and I want to talk about those commandments for just a moment because... Critics and skeptics for generations, in fact, from the very beginning, have had an unrelenting criticism of the terms and the conditions that are connected with the Sinai Covenant. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, he he says this, and and this is really just a snapshot of what perhaps you heard in in college or or maybe in some um, social economics class or or social cultural emphasis class. And, And it might be the reason 
that, that people you know have lost faith because they had this version of Christianity that said, hey, there's 66 books and I've got to do uh, what all 66 books say. I've got to believe all 66 books and, and do everything that's in all of those books. And, and somebody came along and they, they showed you some of the verses in the Old Testament. They showed your friends some of the verses in the Old Testament and as it relates to Jewish law. And you said, wait a minute. What kind of God would, would, would say those kind of things and ask those kind of things? And, and maybe it was the Sinai Covenant, God's arrangement with Israel that caused people that you know to lose faith or maybe even you to begin to doubt faith. And the reason that perhaps those people lost faith or, or maybe even you walked away from faith is because you embraced Richard Dawkins or, or other people's view of this extraordinary covenant that, that God created with his people. But, but here's what Dawkins writes in his book, The God Delusion. He says, Judaism, originally a tribal cult of a single, fiercely unpleasant God, morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions, with the smell of charred flesh. And then he goes on and on and on just criticizing God. And if that's all you ever read, and then somebody pointed out a verse here or a verse there, of course people would walk away from faith and thinking, wow, why would anybody take this seriously? And why would anybody take anything that came from this seriously? And that's why I want to stop for, for just a minute, because Richard Dawkins and, and those like him, they are absolutely, absolutely wrong when it comes to understanding what we call the Old Testament. And, and I want to just give you two examples of this and, and point these out. And the first one is found in Leviticus chapter 18. In Leviticus 18, in the book of Leviticus, there, there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And this is where the most detailed law is found. This is why if you ever start reading the Bible all the way through, maybe you start it at the beginning of the year and you said, I'm going to read it all the way through. And so you're kind of halfway through Genesis. You think, I'm going to read the whole thing and it's going to be great. And you get through Genesis and, and there's creation and it's kind of odd, but it's amazing. But then you, you get past that and you get to Abraham and there's Isaac and there's Joseph and Pharaoh and all of it. It's a great story. And then you get to ex- Exodus and it's an epic story and, and God's doing all of this stuff. And then you get to Leviticus and it's like, what? So, like, oh man, this stuff is is weighty. It's 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 heavy. It's it's uh, it's very methodical. And then you get to numbers, and it's like, wow, it's it's like what again? And like, there's a lot of numbers here. There's a lot of census taking. And then you get to Deuteronomy, and you think, wow, didn't I just read this back in Leviticus? It's like, where does the storyline pick back up? But this is the detailed covenant that God establishes with ancient Israel. And so, anyway, when you get to Leviticus 18, you find 19. Sexual restrictions or sexual prohibitions, 19 laws dealing with sexuality. And if that's all you heard, you would say, see, that's why I'm not a religious person. It's certainly why I'm not a Christian, because there goes God messing with, with our personal life and getting in the bedroom. And it's none of his business and it's none of your business. And, and I don't want to ha- have anything to do with that. And that's why I want to talk about this for, for just a minute, and for, for this one, for just a moment. Plus, when the preacher talks about sex, people are always interested. So there's that. But, but all 19 of these prohibitions that we find in Leviticus, all 19 of them were practiced in Egypt and they were practiced in Canaan. And so God has said to the nation, look, I'm asking you to be different. I want you to look different and I want you to, to act different. I want you to think different. I want you to live different. I want every area of your life to be different because you're my people. But here's the fascinating thing that people overlook today. And it's why I wanted to spend just a, a moment focusing on this. Because today, right now, 
If you look in every single developed nation in the world, and in most what we would consider underdeveloped or, or developing nations in the world, but, but especially in every developed nation in the world, 17 out of those 19 behaviors that are pro- prohibited in Leviticus 18 are either illegal or frowned upon. You can read through them and, and figure out which one's for yourself, but 17 out of the 19 of those behaviors are either illegal or frowned upon. The point being this, that the Hebrew people, the the law that God gave Moses to give to the nation of the Hebrew people, they were way, 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 way ahead of their time. It would take centuries for surrounding civilizations to finally uh, mature to the point where they realized that, that these sexual restrictions, these prohibitions that God gave to the nation of Israel were the way to go. And and the reason that's the case is because the theme of these sexual prohibitions, it, it has to do, well, well, let me just show you the the kind of the theme of this whole section it says this it says no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations which seems very reasonable to me and it seems very reasonable to you but it did not seem reasonable to ancient egyptians or canaanites or the surrounding nations in fact let me just tell you how way ahead of its time this this covenant was for the hebrew people um they were so far ahead of their time that if you fast forward 1,500 years from, from the time that God gives this, this law, if you fast forward 1,500 years, you're at the time of Jesus. And so 1,500 years later, Roman civilization has slowly begun to embrace much uh, of these sexual ethics that God gave the Hebrew people. Not all of them, but, but some of them. But over in Egypt, 1,500 years later, after the Hebrews realized that incest was bad for a whole lot of reasons, over in Egypt, 1,500 years later, the monarchs are still marrying their siblings. It would take another several generations for, for that behavior to be weeded out of, or, or, out of or to be walked away from altogether, even in Egyptian civilization. The point being this, is that you can't just fly over the Sinai Covenant and go, oh, it's so antiquated. Oh, those people, how in the world could God be so old-fashioned and so narrow-minded? Because it's not that way. I don't want to say that the devil is in, in the details because that's kind of, it's kind of odd. But, but in this instance, it, when you look at the details, you really got to get down in it, into the details because really the devil is kind of in the details. It's not just that simple. And in fact, the Sinai Covenant, the Mount Sinai Covenant that God established with, with the ancient Israel, it, it's a moral and civil code with, that when understood in its ancient context, it was brilliant. I'm telling you, it was absolutely brilliant. And every historian knows that you, you never pull something out of its ancient context and compare it to, to what's going on in the modern world. Nobody does that, or at least they shouldn't. Because God, and, and this is why I say that, God is, is like a good father. He, he always accommodates to our capacity. As a parent, you, you have done this, or, or your parents did this. Because think about it this way. If a five-year-old asks, where, hey, where do babies come from? There's a different answer to that than when a 15-year-old asks, hey, where do babies come from? And it's a, there's even a different answer to that if a medical student asks the question, hey, where do babies come from? But, but everybody accommodates to the capacity of their audience. Nobody lies in that when they're answering that question. You just accommodate to, to the capacity of your audience. You accommodate to the capacity of your children. And in the Sinai Covenant, we see God who has developed a nation for a very specific purpose accommodating to the maturity of, of the ancient times. The Sinai Covenant is absolutely brilliant. 
It, it strikes us, us as unsophisticated and, and barbaric, but it was in fact, it was superior. It was superior in every way to the civil and the religious codes and the moral codes of the surrounding nations. In fact, specifically, the, the protections afforded to the most vulnerable were nothing short of revolutionary. Uh, women were, were better protected and they had more rights. Servants and foreigners and children, they all fared way better under the Sinai Covenant than their counterparts did in the sur- surrounding nations. And why? Because of what we said last week. Because the Hebrews from the very beginning believed that there was a single God, not, not a multitude of gods, but a single God who created mankind in His image. That, that everyone was born with dignity. That, that the Hebrew people, they did not worship creation. They were the pinnacle of creation. And this set them apart from the very beginning. And I'm telling you, it would take centuries, centuries for the rest of the world to finally catch up with that. And in fact, there are parts of the world today that still haven't caught up with what God said 3,500 years ago to the nation of Israel. Then, then after the Sinai Covenant, against God's better wishes, Israel decided that, that they wanted to have a king. And so eventually Israel got herself a whole bunch of kings. And, and God didn't want Israel to have a king because God wanted to, them to view him as their king. He, he wanted to rule through the judges, but they eventually got themselves a king. And for the most part, Israel's kings were disasters. I'm telling you, they were absolute disasters. Because such is, is the nature of a king. Such is the nature of someone who, who has all the power and ha- holds all the cards. They, they raise taxes, and, and people don't like taxes. We don't like taxes, do we? They, they raised armies, and armies are expensive. They had multiple wives, and, and anytime someone has multiple wives, things are going to be complicated. Okay, so maybe this is, this is the, your big takeaway for the day. If you have a favorite wife, then things aren't going to go well in your life, okay? Maybe, maybe that's what some of you need to hear today. That if you've got a favorite wife, things aren't going to go well in your life. And, and then as, as time went by, there, by the time they got their third king, by the time Israel got its third king, something else, they, they decided they wanted something else that all of the surrounding nations had. Because over and over and over, we find in this epic story of the development of the Hebrew people, that Israel would look around, and, and instead of looking up, they would look around. And they would, they would say, hey, we want one of those, and we want to be like them, and, and, and they've got it easier than, they, than we do, and why can't we have? And so they got some kings, and then with their third king, they got what every other nation had. They got themselves a temple, and, and their temple was, was a little bit different than all of the surrounding nations' temple, though. It, it, it wasn't different in the way that it looked. In fact, it looked, it was kind of organized and built like most traditional pagan temples w- would have been. But, but the Jewish temple, it did not have the one thing that all the great temples had. There, there was no image of God in their temple that they built. When, when you would build a temple for a specific God, and as part of that temple, you would have a God, a God vault. And in that God vault, there would be a statue of or an image of, of the God for whom that temple was built. Well, the Jewish temple had everything that any other temple would have. They, they had a God vault that, that we would end up calling the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, though, there was no image because one of the Big Ten commandments was you don't have any created image of me because I, I'm Yahweh. I'm the one and only God, and I cannot be contained in or described by or, or narrowed down to to or, or reduced to an image. And by the way, I don't live in this house either. I'm a mobile God. And if you don't think that, just go back and ask Pharaoh because I visited him a few hundred years ago and, and his people still haven't gotten over it. But, but, but anyway, 
the, the Israelite people, they wanted a temple, so they built a temple, and they had a God vault, but they had no image of Yahweh in their God vault because Yahweh said, you will have no image of me. And when you read the Old Testament, back, let's get back to our storyline a little bit because you've got Abraham and Moses and, and the Sinai covenant and then kings and temples. And, and because the kings were constantly misbehaving, occasionally God would send in prophets. And when you read the Old Testament, a great deal of, of the Old Testament is the rants and the ravings and the writings and the warnings and the illustrations of these prophets. And as you may know, I hope that you know this, every single one of the prophets that we read in the Old Testament is addressing a specific historical context. Every one of the the prophets is addressing something that's going on primarily with one of the kings, one of the kings of Israel, of of the northern kingdom, or, or of the southern kingdom in Judah. But occasionally... Occasionally, the prophets would would look beyond their immediate historical context to a future day when God would do something through the nation of Israel for the nations of the world. And one of the most fascinating illustrations of this is found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who wrote about 600 years before the time of Christ. And much of his prophecy makes sense within the original historical context, the the issues that his people were, were facing during that period. But there's one portion that he wrote that, that was mysterious to the original audience. They, they read what he wrote, and, and he talked about this mysterious suffering servant who, whose suffering would somehow benefit the nation, which kind of made sense, but somehow his suffering was, was going to benefit all the nations. It was going to benefit the entire world. And, and the details about this suffering servant, it kind of conflicted with temple worship, and it went against the, the whole temple structure. And so I want to read just a, a few verses from Isaiah 53. As Isaiah looks beyond his immediate context to the ultimate fulfillment of what God was going to do for, the, for not just the nation of Israel, but in fact for the whole world. Here's what he writes in Isaiah 53. He writes, He was despised and rejected by mankind. And the original audience would go, Who is, who is he? It would be a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And he says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. And so wait a minute, wait a minute. They would ask, A person was pierced? And Isaiah would say, Yeah, he was crushed for our iniquity our iniquities a person paid the price or the penalty for someone else's sin or iniquities and and they would say wait a minute that doesn't make sense because that's what we do with lambs and sheep and goats that's what this whole sacrificial system is for it's what it was all about and so isaiah continues he says the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed and again they would ask who is him and then he says the lord has laid on him the iniquity And they would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Lord doesn't lay on people the iniquity of all of us. The Lord lays the iniquity of all of us on animals as a temporary covering for the iniquity. And Isaiah says, no, no, the Lord has laid on him, a a person, a man, the iniquity, the the sin of all of us. And he was cut off from the land, uh, the land of the living. He he would die for our transgressions, for, for all the people. He died for the transgressions of other people. And he would be punished and he would be assigned a grave. And not only was he killed, he was buried. And then he says this. Then Isaiah says this. He says, and after he suffered, that is after he's, he's killed and he's buried, he will see the light of life. And they would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds like he comes back to life. And we would say, yeah, he does. And then Isaiah would say this, and this is, this is absolutely fascinating. He says, and be satisfied by his knowledge, but my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. If we could summarize 
summarize it this way, the, the Old Testament this way. It's like God wades into the fray uh, uh, and he plays by the rules of the kingdoms uh, of the world to usher in a new kingdom that would not be of this world. And to sand off the rough edges of God's Old Testament behavior is, is to miss and is to miss the mess that he waded into to see the story of redemption played out to its bloody crucify him, crucify him end. Our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, it's a saga of ancient people struggling to survive in a world where, where food was scarce and enemies were real and death was just an infection away. But despite that, despite the circumstances, they clung to Yahweh, they clung to their God, and He in turn clung to His nation, careful not to override their freedom with His presence. The entire story, the entire story, it's gritty and it's powerful and it's history with a divine purpose. It's history with, with you in mind. It's history with me in mind. It's history with the entire world in mind. It, it was history that was purposeful, a purpose announced by God to Abraham and fulfilled 2,200 years later when a Jewish carpenter would discover that his fiance was pregnant. And then suddenly the next part of the story the, finds the fulfillment of Isaiah and, and the other prophets and all of that would begin. And then the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, the Apostle Paul who knew the Old Testament inside and out, he summarized it best when he, when he wrote this in a letter to some Christians living in, in the province of Galatia. Here's what he said. He said, but when the set time had fully come, I love that phrase, when the set time had fully come, when God finally got everything and everybody in just the right place, when the set time had fully come, when, when that man Abraham had become a family that had become a nation that had become a kingdom, when the set time had fully come, then and only then, God had sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law that, that God gave to the nation of Israel to redeem those under the law, so that we, so that you, so that me, so that all of us, so that the entire world might receive adoption to sonship. The story of the Old Testament, the story of the Jewish people, honestly, it should cause all of us to drop to our knees in gratitude. There, there is no need to tidy it up because it's not a spiritual guidebook. It's the story of God preparing the world for His Messiah, for our Savior. And so by the second century, the Gentile church, who still did not have a Bible of their own. The, the Gospels have been written and, and they're in circulation, but there is no Bible of their own. The Gentile church, they quickly adopted the Jewish Scripture as Christian Scripture. And they began using it in Christian worship. And eventually they would give it a new name. They began calling it the Old, Te the old Covenant. And, and then later the Latin term would be used, the Old Testament. And it became the Old Testament, and we, and we ask, why old? Because Gentile Christians recognized that God, through Christ, had done something new. That God had fulfilled His old covenant promises to the nation of Israel. And He had established a brand new covenant with, with that nation, but also with all of the nations of the world. A covenant that Jesus would say would be instituted and inaugurated in His blood. But still to this point in history, by, by the you know second century, there's still no Bible. There's just Hebrew text and and some stories of the accounts of the life of Jesus and some, some correspondence by a very famous church planner to his Gentile congregations. And that's where we're going to stop for today. And we're going to pick the story up next week with, with this church planner, Paul's letters to these congregations around the Mediterranean. And, and we're going we're gonna to finish this series 
the, the Bible, and I don't want you to mi- miss next week's message because what we're going to see is the principle that Paul establishes in, in his letters to the churches is a principle that would change, it would literally change the world. It would change the way people treated each other. It would change the way that we ought to treat people. It would change the world forever. And it has the same power to change our lives. So don't miss next week because I'm telling you, it can be life-changing for us. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. And thank you for, for allowing us to see today um, the, the reality of, of the Old Testament Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, for allowing us to, to just kind of dive into just a little bit the, the grittiness and the messiness that, that was there in the Old Testament. And Father, help us to, to never uh, feel the need to, to tidy it up for the sake of the world today. There, there is no need for that because it's, it's, it's your history. It's the history that sets the stage for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of Jesus into the world. And it's because of His presence in the world that we have the New Testament, that we have the Scriptures that we have today. It's because of His presence in the world that we have the hope that we have today, the hope of eternal life, the hope that we could one day live in heaven with you. It's because of His presence in the world that we have the redemption that we find in Him and and the sonship and the daughtership to, to your family. And so, Father, thank you for for protecting and preserving these scriptures. These, these texts that are older than any of the other texts in the world. Thank you for preserving them and protecting them so that we could have them today. And Father, would you, you put it on our hearts to, and compel us to protect and to preserve them for the next generation of believers so that we might understand the, the world in which Jesus entered into and the world that he changed. And Father, may that cause us to make change in our world today. Father, we love you, and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.